The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Hats, the inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House by Donna Brazile caused a political earthquake when it dropped just days before Election Day. And if all you read was the excerpt from the chapter on Bernie Sanders, you're missing a lot. A whole lot. I was trying to do my job. I mean, what, what did they expect me to do? I screamed at him. I, I did cuss him out. And if I cussed him out too much, I've washed my mouth out with Cabernet and Chardonnay, and I will wash my mouth out again. Brazil goes in on her contentious relationship with the Clinton campaign's male high command, on the impact of the Russian hack on the DNC, and on why she wrote the book in the first place. Fair warning, she uses adult language. And as a result, get ready for an interview you won't hear anywhere else. Donna Brazil, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I am so honored to be a part of this wonderful podcast. Thank, thank you for having me. All right. Your book, Hacks, the inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House. Girl, what happened? People are mad. By people, I mean Democrats. Like, when the excerpt hit in Politico... I, I was getting emails. Twitter was blowing up. Burning people were saying, aha, see, it was rigged and all of that stuff. Uh, well, first of all. And let, don't tell them to go go to hell. Again. No, 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 no. Uh, it's a great honor to be here on the show so that you and I can go through the book. This is not about tearing one page from a chapter and then coming to your conclusion before you have read the next chapter or to get the get the entire 180 degrees of this book. Hacks is a story that tells the journey of what happened in th- inside the Democratic National Committee. Of course, we deal with our interaction with the Clinton campaign, with our interaction with the federal agencies, our interaction with the press. I wanted to write my story. Uh, I was the chair of the Democratic National Committee for the second time in my adult life. I became chair as a result of the hacking of the Democratic National Committee. And I stepped into a role as a volunteer to not only help Hillary Clinton uh, and her campaign, but to help Democrats from the courthouse all the way up to the House and the Senate win their elections as well. The one excerpt that that came out was, as you said, just, you know, one chapter from the book, and that was the chapter on on Bernie, Bernie Sanders, um, and everyone latched on to the one word in there that um, Bernie people used during the primary, that Trump used during the general election and still is using, and that's the (laughs) word rigged. Right. When When you read the chapter, you don't say that the election was rigged, Correct. but the intimation, people who are just skimming and just, you know, ripping through and not reading closely came away with the impression that, one, you were saying that the Clinton campaign used the DNC to rig the election for her and to, quote-unquote, steal the election from Bernie. Now, having covered the campaign, 
I know that that none of that is true. And you've said many times um, since the book has come out that that's that that's not true. State clearly what that one chapter was about. It, the, the chapter 10, it, it's called Bernie, I Found the Cancer, But I Will Not Kill the Patient. I am a veteran Democratic Party operative. I was also the vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. And what I learned in the first few weeks of being chair was that I could not make decisions that I thought were very important for the Democratic National Committee. And so when I sought to figure out what was happening, I found out to my great dismay, and actually I was very disappointed. I was disappointed that the DNC had entered the staff, had entered an agreement with the Clinton campaign staff that in exchange for helping the DNC raise money, because the party was broke. Mm -hmm. It was broke after the 2014 cycle, uh, the midterm, uh, in which President Obama encouraged the DNC to take out a loan to help the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. So as a result of the party being broke, meaning it was still raising money to pay off 2012 and 2014, Hillary campaign had agreed to, in exchange for raising money through this joint fundraising agreement, they would, in in effect, have control over three of the quote-unquote divisions of the DNC. What I found cancerous, and I use the word cancerous because I thought this was... This was a decision uh, made in order to keep the DNC alive financially, but in exchange, it would compromise the DNC's independence. And what I wanted to do was to go division by division to find out if anything, uh, if any of the funding corrupted the quote-unquote primary process. And I did not find any corruption, so I said, I concluded the process was not rigged. Hillary Clinton won. She won with four million more votes. She won more primary votes. She won, as you well know, Jonathan, she won the uh, the pledge delegate votes uh, as well as uh, she won the nomination, I thought, fair. So, but I, I owed it to Bernie. I owed it to Bernie and his supporters because I promised them that at the convention after the WikiLeaks um, emails that I would get to the bottom of everything. And that's what I did. I called him. I told him. And here's what i like the, the audience to know is that when I finished my conversation with Bernie, uh, Senator Sanders said to me, and, and remember, he was not, uh, you know, uh, he was not running the Clinton campaign. He said, do I, should I trust the polls? And I said, no, don't trust those polls. We are still dealing with enthusiasm, a lack of enthusiasm for the nominee. I need you to go out there and rally your supporters and rally others to support the nominee. And guess what? He did. Why wasn't it, um, well, why, yeah, why wasn't it unreasonable for the Clinton campaign to put financial controls on the DNC. I mean, the DNC, as you were saying, but and this is before you came in, the DNC was broke. Um, it was in the hole, $2 million. If you're asking someone for money to bail you out, you think they're just going to hand hand you the money without saying, um, we're going to give you the money, but we want to make sure that you don't dig yourself a deeper hole, just pay off the $2 million, And then after the cycle is done, we come to find out that you're in the hole for another $2 million or maybe $4 million. So why wasn't it unreasonable well, for the, the, the Clinton this, campaign? And, and this is why I think you've seen the reaction to my book uh, from from certain people in the Clinton campaign to be such that, how dare she, she say this? Well, here's why. Because I'm the chair of the party. I'm the new sheriff in town. 
I'm not the old sheriff. Debbie is gone. And yet they wanted me to keep a, a, an agreement in place long after the, the previous chair had left. And so in my case, Jonathan, if I raise $5, I want to be able to control how that $5 is being spent. I recognize that the Clinton campaign wanted to control the DNC long after the primary was over, but as the chair of the party, I wanted to also control the party because that is what the chair of the party should do. I should direct how those funds are being spent. And what what really bothered me, and I write in a book again, and I hope people will read this, is that I wanted to bring in people who I believe understood how to win at all levels. And when they objected to me hiring people or bringing in people for free in the case of Tom McMahon, Mm -hmm. I I was outraged by their attitude. Their attitude was like, no, Madam Chair, you can't make these decisions. And I'm like, excuse me, who are you? And that's what I asked one of the individuals. Who are you? Mm -hmm. Because uh, I am the chair of the party. And so I, Brandon Davis, who I identify in the book, I call him the clerk, um, because he reported to Brooklyn. And I said, Brandon, but I'm raising money. The chair of the party should determine where this money should go. It should not, Brooklyn should not tell me how to spend DNC money. And so I recognize the starvation diet they put the DNC under. But as chair of the party, I was also under pressure to help Democrats up and down the ballot. All right. I, I want to I get into the, the contentious relationship with, with Brooklyn in a moment. But we'll stick with Bernie for a moment. Were there, were there any aspects of Bernie's campaign um, that you weren't comfortable with. I mean, eventually he did go out there and campaign with Hillary with Hillary Clinton, but from my perspective, it was grudging. Let me tell you something. I throughout the entire process, uh, going back as far as 2015, many of the Bernie staffers and consultants, many of whom I I know, Ted Devine, Mark Longabaugh, I got to meet Jeff Weaver, Simone Sanders. I can go on and on and on and on. They, they, they were skeptical of the DNC. I remember on, on uh, many occasions I would go up to Bernie and say, Bernie, I know you don't trust Debbie, but I am in the room if you want me. And I said this. I used to say this to Jeff Weaver. If you want me to step aside to give you a seat at the table, I will step aside. Remember, I was a CNN and ABC contributor. Mm-hmm. I didn't need any job. I had a job. I was quite busy, by the way. And, and yet I kept talking. Bernie kept telling me, no, no, don't leave. I need you there. So I kept in touch with Bernie. Likewise, I kept in touch with Hillary. You know how? I kept in touch with Charlie Baker, Mignon Moore. I mentioned all of this mm-hmm. in the book. I kept in touch with everybody. You know, the one good thing about me, Jonathan, you probably know this because you know me just a little bit. I mean, you and I haven't had so much hot sauce together that we have <laughs> parted ways. Um, I talked to everybody because I find it refreshing in politics that you get to know a little bit about what people are doing. And if anyone would read all of my transcripts from my TV years and my radio years, even all my political columns, I tried to be fair to everybody. Mm-hmm. Now, with, with, well, Donald but, Trump would disagree with that. Well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut him some slack. He, the two of us did not get along. So last week when he was tweeting about me, I said, baby, go back to, go back to cussing me out. Don't, don't try to put no love <laughs> right. on my shoulder because <laughs> well, it ain't yeah, – love doesn't appear here. Um, let's stick to Bernie for a moment okay. because the big thing – big problem that I have with, with Senator Sanders and that a lot of Democrats have with Bernie Sanders – 
is that he's not a Democrat. So I'm just wondering, do you think it matters he doesn't want to become a Democrat but still wants to have a seat at the table and the ability to change the party? To my mind, that's like him coming into your house, changing, telling you how you should decorate your house and even changing some of the furniture and then leaving and leaving you to live with with whatever mess you've created. Well, you know, let me say this. Or he's uh, created in that. I go back to uh, the 1980s with both Secretary Clinton and Senator Sanders. Secretary Clinton through Children's Defense Fund, Bernie Sanders through the Jackson campaign. So Bernie is an activist. He is an activist. Bernie has always uh, maintained his independence. He caucused with the Democrats, but he's always maintained his independence. In 2016, think of it this way. Bernie ran against the establishment, similar to Barack Obama in 2008. People mm-hmm. forget. Barack Obama ran against the establishment. He ran a, He wanted to destroy the superdelegates, Barack Obama. But he was a Democrat. I agree. I understand party labels matter because I'm a Democrat. But just because somebody doesn't register doesn't mean we, we don't welcome them in terms sure. of their support. And what Bernie did was he activated and brought into the party millions of new people, millions of new people who were ready to help the Democrats. And so I don't want to say one nasty, single, bad thing about Bernie or Hillary or anybody else, because as far as I'm concerned, we need more people in the political process. We need more leaders who are willing to organize and energize people. And I have nothing but good things to say about Bernie, Hillary, Martin O'Malley, and I'll just leave it there. So let's talk about the, the contentious relationship with Brooklyn. There are two passages that I've gotten to in, in the book that are sort of emblematic of the contention. One is even the title, <laughs> the title <laughs> of uh, uh, the chapter. Wait, here it is. Chapter six. I'm going to read this one um, because you're going back and forth with this Brandon person and you're like trying to get them to get them to let you use the use money that you raise or get money from Brooklyn. And this is on, if I remember right, it's on a phone call and you say, actually, I, you read it. These are your words. Page 59. 59. Okay. Page wait 59. a minute. Okay. You got it? Here. Where, right here. There it oh, is. Okay. That one paragraph. Oh, I was because I was see before you get to this paragraph, <laughs> you have to do you have to say I have worked with men all all my life in politics, and I can sense when they get to this part about not being able to deal with a woman. This was not a racial thing. This was a gender thing. Every time you mention that they are trying to shut you down because you are a woman, all these guys are like, no, no, no. I would not say that. I would not act like someone who was asking for permission. I had given them all the logical reasons why I needed Tom on board. I had run out of rational arguments. I go on to say, quote, you know, this does not feel like a negotiation to me, I said. This feels like power and control. Gentlemen, let's just put our dicks on the table and see who, who's who got the bigger one. Because I know mine is bigger than all of yours. Yes, I, you know, Jonathan, from time I, to time you deal with big swinging dicks. You ever dealt with a big swinging dick? A big swinging dick is really an ass. Okay, it's someone who believes simply because they are a man, they can tell women what to do. There's this power thing where a guy who walks in the room with a blue suit assumes that he should sit at the head of the table and a woman must ask permission. Well, I had 
been involved in politics all my adult life with so many campaigns as an activist. And when I walk into the room, I don't want to be told that I have to ask permission. I am the chair of the party. I have run, not just run presidential campaigns. I have been active in 11 presidential seasons, over 21 non-presidential seasons. If there's one thing I know, it's the country. I may not know a lot about uh, uh, things that I cannot figure out because I don't have time to do it, but I know about campaigns. And the condescension was just amazing. And all I wanted to do, now let me just tell you this, there are a lot of people I know in politics. I know sharks, I know snakes, I know I know alligators. I, I, I even know, you know, leprechauns. I mean, in politics, you meet them all, right? Mm-hmm. Tom McMahon is a gentle breeze, but he's a smart guy. Tom was responsible for the 50-state strategy, which enabled the Democrats to take control in 2006. This was under Howard Dean. Under Howard Dean, who I still believe was one of the best chairs ever. Everybody wants to model Howard Dean. And we won the White House in 2008. So I, I called on Tom. I said, Tom, I need you. Because I needed help. And I said, would you come over to be my my deputy? And I needed a deputy who had already been in charge of something. Brandon, who I had a lot of respect for, had no experience. So I'm like, who are you? Why are you here? Seriously, I did. That's how I Mm talked. Why are you here? Like, what is your reason for being here? And basically, he was to watch the house. That's why I call him a clerk. And, and so, but I wanted Tom. And Tom was willing, like I was, to work for free to help Hillary Clinton. And they told me they had to vet Tom. When they told me they had to vet Tom, that's when I'm like, come on, guys, put them all on the table, because I got one, too. <laughs> now. Now, for, uh, 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 let's do a reality show. I don't have one. <laughs> but I pretended to have one. I, I just felt like, hell, I got power, too. Put them on the table. I got one. I got one. And, and let me tell you something. I wasn't using that as a... Any other kind of metaphor other than to say men should allow women to have their own power and own their power and not make us feel as though to have power we have to be a man. Now, on on page 127 in the chapter, I am not Patsy the Slave. Who you getting to the controversial stuff? Well, because it gets to this. This is how contentious the relationship was between Brooklyn and the DNC and Mm -hmm. specifically you. And you're negotiating with, um, you're talking to them again. And this time, I believe it's you're, you're haggling over being able to raise money for the DNC for your effort to get a ground game going and advertising. And you wanted $8 million. $8 million. That, I mean, you're raising a billion dollars. And you see how simple I was? I just wanted eight, $8 million. Not a billion. Oh, sorry. Yeah, eight million, eight million dollars. That was essentially. Think about the logic of what I was asking. I'm, I'm asking people to be just a little logic, logical. I'm asking a million dollars a week. <laughs> it's not so funny, but a million dollars a week to help raise her profile and to energize people from the bottom up across the country, and we particularly just, people of color. Yes, because. Donald Trump, two weeks earlier on August 19th, has said, what the hell do you have to lose? Now, Jonathan, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people. When he, I know he was talking to people out in Detroit. I'm like, he just said, what the hell do you have to lose? And all I kept thinking about was lose our health insurance. We can lose our voting rights. LGBT community is going to lose their rights. You know, we're going to lose women's, you know, a woman's right to choose and birth control. And climate change, all I kept thinking was, what the hell do we have to lose? And I was anxious to respond to him. But you just can't respond with a column. 
you need to, like, address what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to address what he was saying. And I could not spend the money I was raising. And then they only gave me $2 million million for 10 weeks. What can you do with $2 million? And so on a phone, I believe it was on a phone call, a conference call with four four folks in Brooklyn. You guys are you guys are having you're going at it, and then you you drop the twelve years of slave bomb. I was dropping everything on them. Yeah, and so you want to you want to read uh, one twenty seven. Yeah, the well, bottom. again, this is a very important period that I'm frustrated. I, I I've gone beyond my cursing. My best friend Mignon told me, "Don't cuss them out, down. You're gonna shut them down." I said, Mignon, I mean, I, I do curse. I, I'm, I'm so, that's why I go to church, <laughs> and I go to confession, and then I wash my mouth out with Chardonnay, okay? Because I try to keep all of this stuff right where it should be, just passion. Here I said, all right, so I'm asking them to treat me with respect, and I said, all I want you to do is to treat me with some respect, and my voice was rising. I said, I'm not Debbie, referring to Debbie Wasserman Shaws. I'm not Hannah. I don't know who Hannah, but I just felt like I had to say Hannah. And I am not Patsy the Slave. Oh, I was like, because I felt like I was being whipped. I also felt like, you know, remember in, in Patsy the Slave? In 12, uh, in 12, 12 Years a Slave. slave yep. Okay. I said there was no response to that name. I didn't believe that these nice liberals would would have missed seeing the film 12 Years a Slave, in which Solomon Northrup's friend Patsy was played so well by Lupito Nyong'o, who won the Oscar for the role. Patsy the Slave, I said, y'all keep whipping me and whipping me, and you never give me my money, any money, or any way to do my damn job. I was trying to do my job. I mean, what what did they expect me to do? I screamed at them. I, I did cuss them out. You know, I cussed them out too much. I've washed my mouth out with Cabernet and Chardonnay, and I will wash my mouth out again. But they were wrong to prevent me from doing my job because we, uh, because of this silly agreement that they kept saying, well, we, we have the right to. No, you don't. This is now money I'm trying to raise. So please get me off of this starvation diet. Now, the, the, the sort of the crux of your... Um, contentious relationship with Brooklyn comes in a few pages, er, a few pages earlier than that, and I'm go- I'm going to read it because it was a very succinct um, description. Uh, when you're reading the book, it all comes together in this in this moment um, where you say the common wisdom was was that my inability to accept that things were different now was what was making me so feisty, meaning unpleasant to work with. But the truth was that no matter how much noise I made, my thoughts were irrelevant to them. I saw myself as making a sacrifice to help the party. They saw me as desperate for significance and trying to to claw my way back into the national conversation. You managed uh, Vice President Gore's presidential campaign. You were chair of the party. You've been on the ground in states all over the country for longer than a lot of the folks you were battling with had been had been alive. Correct. And so for you to have to argue with with those folks was galling to you. Here's why, Jonathan. Um, because I volunteered to do this. I volunteered to help a friend. I also volunteered because I loved and respected Barack Obama. And as a black woman who was at the table to help elect the first black president. I wanted to help elect the first 
female president. Many people don't know this, but a few months before uh, the nomination was over with, I was offered a very, very nice paying job, seven figures. And for the first time in my adult life, I felt like, wow, I, I don't have to struggle as much as I used to. And and finally, I said to myself, wow, would it be so nice to make money or should I elect the first woman? A woman who I know, by the way, I write this in the book. Many Americans probably don't know this, but Hillary Clinton introduced us. And when I say us, there's a group of women in this city called the Color Girls. And we're some badass sisters, too, by the way. And Hillary came to us at 10th and G Northwest and said, y'all got to meet Barack Obama. And I said, who in the hell is a Barack Obama? My friend Mignon Moore knew him because she was from Chicago. And so we, in 2003, and you know what? If you talk about trouble, do you know in 2004, we pushed to make him the keynote speaker at the Democratic Convention. We helped him raise millions of dollars millions of dollars to win his Senate race. And so I felt obligated, not just as a Democratic Party activist, but as a woman and a black woman to get off of my, you know what, and go down to the DNC to manage it. Because I knew the DNC, I knew the people there, I knew what my job would be, and I wanted to help elect Hillary and Democrats up and down the ballot. I've learned that, you know, next time when I'm asked to to run something, think twice. But let me tell you, I have no regrets because I still believe she would have made a better president than the person that is in the White House today. The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow, and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives, and perhaps one day, yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine, where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. How much of the of the mistreatment of you you think is structural, that that's how the party organs are treated by presidential candidates, and how much of it do you think was race? Or was it generational? I looked at it as generational because, you know, I'm going to make fun of my friends, but here's the difference. And think of it as, you know, uh, it's not an attack. It's just acknowledging the obvious. I come from the school where I walk into your neighborhood, Jonathan, and I I walk up to your door, knock on it, and and say, we need your help. We need you to vote. I also come from the school that when Jonathan is actively engaged, that we give you resources like buttons and bumper stickers and other kind of campaign paraphernalia, including the issues and the platform, to get people excited. Um, I do not come from the campaign where we look at to computer modeling and and then suggest that jo- everyone in Jonathan neighborhood because they look a certain way will vote a certain way. I don't like that. I like to I like to go and talk to people. I like to really figure out what people are doing. And so both models should complement each other. One is not better than the other. You need both in a campaign. And I thought Hillary's campaign was missing that element of requesting help. Because you know what it was like? It's like when Bernie Sanders said to me, he said, these polls, you trust the polls. This was a big Washington Post this weekend, the weekend that I talked to Bernie, the week I did, the Washington Post had come out. Remember, this is after Labor Day. What Hillary's leading by a whopping margin. And I said, oh, don't you believe that? I knew the polls were, you know, 
basically a titan in the end. And I just wanted them to respect my gut because my gut went where my butt went. Let's talk about the gut goes where the butt goes, okay? My butt went to Florida. My butt traveled to uh, Ohio and, and to Michigan and to Colorado multiple times, Nevada, and I never even put a nickel in a slot machine. My gut went because my butt would, that walked the streets, that talked to people, they were telling me, Madam Chair, we don't have Livonia Allison in Durham, North Carolina. She called me every week. When are you going to get me some stuff? When are you going to? I'm like, Madam, I'm not running a Clinton campaign. And I finally got to the point. I was so frustrated. I said, you know what? I got one better for them. I'm going to go out and raise my own money. And I think if you want to know the truth, it hurt me. It hurt me that here I was 56 years old. I don't have this to do ever again in my life, and yet I did it. And all I was doing was begging for me. I was begging on behalf of the people who wanted to help Hillary to give them some yard signs, to give them some resources. That's all I was doing. I was begging, and yes, from time to time I did some cursing, and I apologize if I cussed anybody out too much. So and there's some other cousin that you do you do in the book, but I don't want to belabor that because I do want to talk about while you're fighting with Brooklyn vociferously, you're also fighting this cloak and dagger war with Russians. Oh, God. And there's a point in the book that was sort of surprising to me where you walk through all the ways the Russians were able to hack into the DNC system for a year before anyone actually noticed. And one of them was they were able to do it by voicemail? Yes. Look, this was one of the most sophisticated hacking cyber espionage campaign probably in the history of the world. But remember, it wasn't just the DNC. These APT-28, APT-29, they were also hacking into the Pentagon. They were hacking into the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They were hacking into federal departments. And it's called advanced persistent threat. And Cozy Bear, which was aligned with some of the intelligence units in Russia, I mean, they were active. Jonathan, they, they, not only, they not only got your number, so to speak. Imagine you being a DNC staff. They had your telephone number. They had your emails. They had access to your personal information. If you were a DNC donor, and in some cases because we provided, uh, we did the initial uh, gathering of data to give to the White House to get people in, they had all of that. And they went after people. They threatened them. They harassed them. This was not. So I would, my mind every day was like I had my, my from 4 a.m. until about 7, 30, 8 o'clock. That was, I was dealing with the hacking. A.m. You know why in the a.m.? Because I got all of my briefings. And then I had to somehow another summon the courage. I think I ate a lot of oatmeal, too. Some of the courage, it was not spinach. I was not Popeye the Sailor. <laughs> I, was, I was definitely eating oatmeal. And I would get my courage up, and then I would go over to DNC. And only a small number of staffers knew the days that we were being attacked, how the Russians were going back in there with APT 28 and 29 to steal our data. And by the time they got through our data, and the DCCC data, I do believe that they had corrupted our system. 
And we couldn't turn off our system. People keep saying, well, why didn't you turn over to the FBI? Because we could not turn our servers over. That's all we had. That's how I knew Jonathan Capehart was somebody we had to target. I'm using you as a metaphor because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I know we would never target a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want to have that little cackle there. but go um, <laughs> Well, the reason why... Um, is because, you know, as Democrats, like Republicans, we maintain a huge database of Americans. And so we maintain not just your voting history, we maintain other information that gives us a sense of where you might be heading. And by the way, if you have a likelihood of turning out or a likelihood of staying home based on the election cycle. So this database is updated on a regular basis. And just imagine this. Starting in 2014, the Russians began to understand every aspect of our election system, including our database. That's why they were so clever with Facebook and and the social Twitter, Twitter, et cetera. And that's why they were so clever with their Russian news agencies penetrating the – so here's a good example. And this is all in the book, uh, starting with Chapter 15, The Terror Comes Home. At night when Donald Trump would start saying, Donna Brazil, you know know how he talks, right? And I said, oh, oh, my God, here it comes. Within five minutes, the, the troll factory would come after me. Then the bots would come after me. Then the regular American, what I call people who take everything verbatim, would come after me. And this was like a gumbo, a gumbo of hate that I had never experienced before. You know, I used to laugh and tell people, Jonathan, you would like this. I said, when I ran Al Gore's campaign, I got called the N-word. And, of course, I've been called a lot worse. But I started getting what I call the M-word monkey, the the B-word the C-word and then the N-word And I'm like, okay, if this was just Americans, I know they would call me the N-word and shut up, or the C-word or the B-word and shut up. But the combination, I say, these are not Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Even that combination of hate was, like, too far even for Americans. Well, Well, you know, I just because I've been involved in enough campaigns. And then remember, I'm from the South, so I'm not... My mother used to say, it's not what they call you, is what you respond to. And I'm like, but these are not Americans. And nobody... Here's the thing that... Can I just give you a pain? Journalists, many of the journalists last year ignored it, ignored what we were saying. And I have to give credit to the Washington Post. And I'm going to say this, and not because I'm a subscriber... Thank you. But I'm saying this, and the New York Times, I, I subscribe to both. People believed us, and they weren't buying all of the BS that was coming from WikiLeaks and Guccifer 2.0 and DC Leaks. Some people believed that there were that the Russians were actively taking this data for espionage purposes. And I want to applaud many of the, your colleagues at the Washington Post who didn't assume that we were just crazy or making this up, but understood that we were under active attack. There were not many journalists. Michael Isakoff is another one who kept, they understood what was happening to us. But the, the vast majority of journalists, as far as I'm concerned, they, 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 did, us, they did a great injustice by not uh, questioning how these, this information was coming to them and how it was coordinated. And they just they just they just treated it like it was cotton candy. Well, on, on this issue of coordinated um, in the I am not Patsy the slave chapter, when you're talking about the debate 
the right. first debate yeah. and how um, then candidate Trump wasn't prepared, but Hillary was super prepared and she did a great job. And you have this line where you say, you say these guys, meaning the Trump campaign, these guys had it all sewn up in the bag. They didn't spend much money campaigning. I guess he felt he didn't need to prepare because he knew the Russians were taking care of this for him. Yeah. Let me tell you something. I, I You know... I tried to get my Republican colleagues, my counterparts, to help us. I really did. I begged them. I begged them as an American. I got a letter out there on October 18th. I said, I know we both care about our democracy. And there was something about the way in which the campaign was being managed that I knew that this was not a typical campaign. It's—and this is why I want people to read the book—I kept seeing the collusion— I couldn't explain it, but as somebody who's an old hand in politics, I mean, you know, think about October 7th. There we go. I think that this is in the book called The October Surprise. October 7th was that day that the DNI and others concluded that the Russians had hacked into our election. Uh, and then an hour later, we, the Washington Post uh, revealed the, the Access Hollywood tape. And an hour after that, we have the WikiLeaks dump of John Podesta emails. emails. Mm-hmm. So on October 7th, I thought Donald Trump would lose the election. And you know what happened? The bots took over. The number one story the following day and the days that follow wasn't the DNI and their conclusion that the Russians were meddling or um, Access Hollywood, which, you know, I think for 72 hours that was a big topic. The number one story was the content of John Podesta emails. And that, in my judgment, was the travesty because the media had no other reason to cover that because it kept going from number 15 to number one. The the Twitter traffic and the troll traffic and the Facebook traffic all made the uh, disclosures in John Podesta's emails Mm -hmm. the story. And, you know, the funny thing is, the only American, as far as I'm concerned, because John has never verified what was true, false, or indifferent, the only American who's had to deal with what was in the contents of those emails, me. And they were not my emails. It was John's emails. And I never sent it. I only sent three or four directly to John. But WikiLeaks, once again, used those emails to what? Discredit Hillary Clinton or discredit the people around Hillary Clinton, like John and others, or to sow divisions within the Democratic Party. This was a strategic hit, the stolen leaked emails. And and it worked. So the DNI comes out and says that we, you know, the Russians are, the Russians are behind this. And now let's fast forward to now, 2017, where the president of the United States is, you know, it was over in Asia, He says, Vladimir Putin told me he didn't do it. He didn't do it. And I believe him. He didn't do it. Meddling in the U.S. election. And then hours later comes out and says, oh, no, I I believe our intelligence agencies. Now, we've seen this movie before where he speaks his mind in the first instance. Then the aides get to him and he comes back and he says, no, 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 no. I believe X. And then, you know, the third step in, in all this is he's going to revert back to number one, where yes. he goes back and says that, no, I, be, I believe Putin. As someone who was head of the DNC, which was hacked, 
by the Russians and the consequences that we've seen. What what do you say or how do you feel about the president of the United States taking the side of um, an adversary? Very disappointed. Very disappointed, but not surprised. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write a book, um, well, there were several reasons. One, uh, Robin Mook, who had an opportunity to write a postmortem, made a decision for whatever reason not to write one. I kept saying to Robbie, we need a postmortem, we need a postmortem. Just like I went to many people in the Clinton campaign afterwards and said, we need to tell the story of what happened to us, how our database was corrupted, how the names, I mean, I, I laid it all out. I've laid it out to the Washington Post, the, Washington, uh, the New York Times, and many, many, many others. The reason why I wanted to write this book was I was afraid that people would forget what happened to the DNC. People would forget what happened to our democracy. And I was afraid uh, as early as February when I applied to go to the Shorenstein Center to study how uh, other countries are dealing with uh, the Russian hacking. I was afraid that we would never deal with what happened here in America. So I wrote this book to explain to the American people what the hacking was all about, how they got into our system, what they did with the data, how they tried to discredit our nominee, but most importantly, how they tried to weaken our democracy. So Donald Trump is absolutely wrong. He is trying to discredit the Russian investigation. He's trying to stop Robert Mueller from doing his job. And as far as I'm concerned, until President Trump acknowledge that the country was under attack in 2016, we will be under, I think, worse uh, additional tax in 2018. That's why I wrote the book in 2017, so that we can become more aware of what it takes to protect our democracy and to ensure that this never happens to another political party in our country. What do you say to to folks who say that um, you, the party, Democrats need to put 2016 in the rearview mirror and and look to the future? You know, if I, you know, can make one blunt comment, and I'm not going to say what I've been known to say, I would ask people to take a deep breath, read the book, read it and come away understanding that we have to do more than just pick candidates uh, and go out there and campaign. Um, we need to be careful of our infrastructure uh, how we set up our emails, how we set up our phones so you have two-step verification, uh, how we change our password on a regular basis, and how the cyber defenses of our country should be stronger in the future. So I would tell people, um, yes, 2017 is a year for debate and dissent. 2018, we have to come together. We need to take a chapter from what happened this past week in Virginia and New Jersey and other places across the country. We need to feel more candidates, um, candidates of color, candidates with different backgrounds. Our diversity is our strength. We need to compete everywhere, invest in battleground as well as non-battleground states. It matters that Democrats are are, are, are electing people to office across the country, working with independents and disaffected Republicans. If they take anything from a book in 2017, it is that we heal our wounds by addressing what caused us to come apart. And we come together in 2018 in unity because 2018 is the ball game. It's not 2020 that we need to be worried about. 2018, when three-fourths of the American people will support 
or reject the, their candidates for governor, when 33 uh, states will have senatorial elections, when all 435 members of the United States House of Representatives will be on the ballot. This is our moment to seize control and to make our political parties more representative of our values as well as our diversity. Let me tell you something that uh, Howard Dean was on the podcast back in September, and this is what he said of young voters. He said, our problem is that these people, young voters, are not Democrats. They're very independent-minded, they don't like politics, and they mistrust institutions, and they think they don't need them because they never had they never had needed them in their lives. So hearing him say that, how does the party reach those young, those particular voters? And is the party's problem a messaging one or is it a policy one? I, I think I think both political parties have been weakened by the polarization. That's why the majority of voters in this country are now independent. They don't want to be attached to a label on the right uh, that that makes them uncomfortable or a label perhaps on the left that makes them uncomfortable. I think we have to reach people with a very uplifting, positive message. We need to let them know that the party, the, this party, which turns 170 years old next year, is a party that has always, uh, that's on your side for those who are in the middle class or struggling to be in the middle class, that we want to raise their wages and give every American both a healthy start and a head start in life. I think if we had a compelling, concise message, uh, Jonathan, 2018 is going to be a very, very good year for Democrats and for those Americans who want to see a change in the White House in 2020. Um, as you mentioned, um, it, during Election Day um, on November 7th or 8th, 8th. Uh, November, November 8th, 8th, I've lost all sense and of time. And next year is November 6th. Okay, thank you, Don. <laughs> so there were postcasts in Virginia and New, in New Jersey, and we saw all sorts of, of electoral firsts. Black women, are, are the base of the party. They're the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. We've seen it in, in tallies, in results all over the country. Um, and a lot of them are increasingly like, making the jump to, to run for office. What will you do or are you doing to encourage more of this trend? And will you help re- recruit and fundraise and mentor more women of color to jump in? First politics? of all, I, I, you know, uh, just a week ago, I was I was uh, I was being accused of, uh, I guess, suppressing the vote in Virginia. And I, I, I said, yeah, Lord, yeah, yeah, oh, people went after me, uh, but that's OK. I'm not I'm, I'm no stranger to trouble. Here's what I try to tell people. Uh, We all have to become activists. We have to take an active role in our democracy. We have to take an active role not just as voters but also as office holders. We need more people to run, more people to take their seats at the table. I've said over and over again, we're not asking anybody to leave the room. We're just saying scoot over because we need a new generation to begin to take their seats at the table. The sooner the better because they need to understand the political process. Now, you know, Jonathan, it's a strange thing that I would say this, and this is not, I'm not trying to defend myself because, you know, when I get my you-know-what kick, I can kick back. Before the election in Virginia, I was out there raising money. I was out there raising money for the Virginia Democratic Party, New Jersey Democratic Party, any political party that calls me, including the DNC, the DCCC, you call them. Donna Brazil has continued to raise money. That's number one. Number two, Donna gave to individual candidates. Justin Fairfax, when he wasn't getting a dime from the party, you know who picked up the phone and called? Me. When he was told that he had to sign some document in order to get money, 
I said, don't you sign one damn thing. You're running as a Democrat. That should be enough. Lieutenant, now lieutenant governor He's elected He's a lieutenant in governor in Virginia. And you know, when, uh, when some of the candidates who were not the, quote unquote, the, the, the usual suspects of people who run, these are people of color, women of color. Um, we had a trans candidate in Virginia. You know who put money out there? Me. And, but you know, even more important than writing a personal check and raising money for the party? I flew home. I'm living in Boston now, in Cambridge. I flew home at my expense. And I asked my friend, I asked my friend Julie, she's sitting here. I asked my friends in D.C., I said, what the hell am I doing at 57 Canvassing? I I mean, I was driving. You know how you drive on a Saturday morning on I-95, and the traffic is still, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I never come to the suburbs. I mean, I don't even, you know, I'm not one of those kind of people. And I was telling my car, which couldn't even figure out the direction. I said, I, I don't come out here. But I went out there because Kathy Tran, a candidate for a delegate in a Republican district, she called and she said, will you come out and canvass? And I said, yes. And that morning, I canvassed in, in Northern Virginia. She won. She is the first Asian Pacific Islander to be elected to the Virginia uh, House of Delegates. So... I tell all my friends, don't focus on trying to tear someone down. We got to lift these people up. We got to lift up these new candidates. Many of them will be women of color. Many, many of them will be openly gay. Many of them will not have the resources that traditional candidates receive from big donors, and therefore, people like me have to raise money for them. And I have no problem doing it. So, your book, um, and, and when you read it, it's you're talking about. Brooklyn and how they're doing you wrong, and you're talking about um, the generational thing and how that's doing you wrong. And I'm just wondering, as the fi- as the final question, did you do anything wrong? Yes. Do you know how many nights I would sit down and say, Donnie wanted one hundred fifty thousand more for Michigan. Ed Rendell wanted three hundred thousand more for Pennsylvania. G.K. Butterfield in North Carolina warned me that those polls were not open and something was wrong with the machines. And what more could I have done? I think about when I left the boiler room that evening to go over to the Javits Center, and the first person I saw was Stevie Wonder, and then I saw John Bon Jovi, and I said, why are you guys here? You should be back helping. Don't you know people are still in line? Now, there are so many mistakes I... You know, what more could I have done? I don't know. I mean, in terms of the hours I put in, I gave it my all. I, uh, and I stayed to the bitter end. I cleaned up the books. I got rid of some consultants that did probably uh, anger at me uh, because I, I said I ended their gravy train. It wasn't personal. I just thought that everybody should have been like me, in it for the long run to help Hillary win. I didn't get paid. They had to pass a resolution to reimburse me because I thought I was giving back to pay forward for my country. I've always been an activist. I've always been somebody who cared about the people being at the table. And, Jonathan, if if this is the end of my time in American politics, I'm going out with my own dance, Uh, because the music that has always been in my head was the music of those who struggled to make a difference in this society. The music was always about giving back and paying it forward. The music was always about creating an America where nobody would be left behind. I, I, in my years of being on the DNC, I, I have so many great stories. Um, of, but many of them are stories of how to empower people to be involved in the process. 
And I thank God that I was uh, able to serve. And I thank Fannie Lou Hamer for raising her voice in 1964. And by raising her voice in 64, and Jesse raising his fist in 1984, I was able to watch a black man serve in the White House, and I was ready, if not anxious, to see a woman in the White House. Donna Brazil, former interim chair of the Democratic National Committee and author of Hacks, the inside story of the break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. I hope you bring me back next year and I can give you my new dance song. It's called Freedom. Freedom? It's <laughs> an old one. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hey, 